Um, can you hear me? Amazing. I'm just going to have a drink because I didn't manage one earlier, and uh, we're just tag teaming with. So. Katie said it already, but um, we're starting a full series today um, looking at this topic of sexuality. What we mean is we mean what it means to live as sexed beings, male and female, who have a capacity for sexual desires and sexual feelings. But I think it's quite a difficult thing to talk about for the simple reason that it's incredibly personal to us. Um, and as a result of that, what I think I've kind of seen across the church just you know, in the West, really, is that the, the default approach is one of silence. And I think the reason for that is because it feels a lot more comfortable to be silent and say nothing and not talk about it than talk about something where there might be disagreement and then we've got to face that disagreement. Um, and I've kind of come to the point on that where I... I I don't think silence is good enough. And the reason I don't think silence is good enough is because what silence does is it creates a culture of fear and uncertainty where nobody feels able to be truly honest and real about what they're experiencing, about what their life is, because they don't know what reaction they're going to receive, because they don't know what anyone thinks. Um, you know, this is a massive area for all of us in our discipleship. Every single one of us is a sexual being. Um, and that's something that Jesus wants to shape and to see flourish. For us to not talk in this, I think, is kind of um, remiss. And particularly, I think it doesn't serve the LGBTQ plus community, many of whom um, have experienced ostracization and oppression. And so not speaking to that, they are the most affected by that silence because they are the ones who are perhaps most you know, affected by fear and uncertainty and not knowing what people think. So what I'm going to try and do um, over the last uh, next four weeks is kind of share some of what I think. I don't profess to speak for anyone else. I profess to speak for us all. But I want to share kind of where I've come to on this. And often when you, when you do sermons and teaching, you, you kind of start preparing maybe a week or two in advance. Um, this is one I started preparing for um, about, starting about six years ago. Um, so I've now kind of read loads on this. I've read, I think, over 40 books. I've read, listened to hundreds of podcasts, read hundreds of articles. And I don't say that to kind of say that therefore I'm correct. Um, but what I do say is that I'm coming to this from a place of, I hope, being considered. And what I'm going to try and do is condense all that thought into kind of four weeks, which is a bit of a challenge, but we'll see where we go. And my hope is this. Um, stay with us. Um, we don't have to agree. Um, what I would love is that we kind of wrestle with the bits that we don't. Um, and, and the wrestle isn't really with me, to be honest. The wrestle is in, in, in Scripture with Jesus, ultimately. Um, and, and kind of chat it through. Um, we're not going to say, and we never will, hey, you believe what Will thinks or clear off. That's not the kind of community we want to be. Like, people can't think creatively under the spirit of coercion. Hold a gun to someone's head, you get panic, you get anxiety. You don't get the ability to kind of really think and reflect carefully. So we're not doing that, and we never will. Um, and I think more than that, we need space for, for, for both messiness and journey. Like ultimately, we teach, point people to Jesus. Um, we don't coerce. Um, we point people in the direction. Okay, let's go. So I think there are two main stories that many of us have heard and experienced. They're not stories necessarily we'd be able to kind of like name, um, but they're stories that are kind of um, uh, in the kind of culture. Seeking, if we could just go back one, if that's right. Um, the first story is what I'm going to call the cultural story. It's a script that I think we see in kind of the world, um, we see through media. No one ever says it explicitly, but the undertone is this. The 
Let me go something like this. That true fulfillment, to be truly fulfilled as a human being, is directly synonymous with sexual fulfillment. You can't be truly fulfilled unless you're sexually fulfilled. To be sexually unfulfilled is to be unfulfilled as a human being. In this story, it's kind of seen as oppressive to not pursue or to limit someone else's pursuit of sexual fulfillment and desire and pursue that that might make you happy. Kind of within this, the ethic is we're seeking happiness, we're seeking kind of to feel nice, we're seeking to kind of feel fulfilled. That happens through sexual fulfillment. And the ethic is basically anything goes, anything goes as long as there's consent and as long as no one's harmed. Consent and harm are fairly loosely defined, as we've seen through things like the Me Too um, uh, kind of movement. But as long as there's consent and harm, uh, uh, consent and no harm, sorry, it's all right. Looking at this story, I want to ask a question. Is it working? And the answer I, I would like to suggest is no. Do we see a world where everyone is fulfilled? Or do we see a world where people are And I think the solution that's often applied is more. Well, you just need to look further. You need to look more. You need to try different things. What we find is that that journey continues, but we don't look out there and see a world that is fulfilled relationally or generally. We see a world that is still searching, still the problem is this, there's a second story that's there. And it's the story that I would argue has at least been perceived that the church has been telling. Um, I would say that this story runs like this. Rules, 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 more rules. And by the way, if you don't keep the rules, uh, God hates you, uh, you're a little person, and please get out, we don't want you here anymore. Uh, like, maybe you're sat here right now, and the story that you've heard that you've just rules. Maybe you've been on the right side of that. You've kept the rules. Well done. Maybe you've kind of feel like you're on the other side of that and you don't feel that and actually you're experiencing kind of profound shame. You know, I think Christians are increasingly regarded as not just being in touch, but being oppressive and indeed dangerous. There's a row currently going in on the Church of England that kind of has a real chance of splitting the church in two. And the question I want to ask here is, what's the good news there? Like, where's the message of Jesus there? Where's the gospel in that story? I think it's a story that has shamed and judged people. And maybe that's how you feel. Um, and as the, the, the gay Catholic writer Eve Tushnet said, she said, you can't build a vocation. You can't build a life off a no. You can only build off a yes. You know, in this world, there are too many critics. And I want to say people who are simply critics are near useless. Because whilst criticism is needed... If all you do is tear down and you're not willing to put forward an alternative positive vision for people to build their lives upon, you're not offering anything of hope. You're not offering anything of good news. And so what I want to try and do today, and we kind of then want to from here kind of map out how that sort of affects different areas over the next three weeks, is map out what I think is actually the story of the Bible when it comes to sexuality, what I'm calling the story the rules forgot. Are we ready? We've got quite a lot to get through, but we're going to do it. Okay. Thank you. Shall I swap now? Yeah. Great. Hello? Sounds all right. I'll give you that one. Cheers, Ed. Okay. So, first off, it's a story that starts with Jesus. This might seem obvious, but I've never ceased to be amazed at the amount of time where people tell the story of Christianity and they start with sin, or they start with humans, or they start with the world. The story always starts with Jesus. Um, a couple of scriptures. So Jesus says this about himself. 
He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Colossians 1, Paul writes, and he says, in a kind of a bigger text about Jesus, he says, in him all things were created. This is a story about Jesus, and who is Jesus? Jesus is both the one who is creator, the one who made us, and the one who is father, and the one who loves us. You know, he's our creator. And so, kind of in, in this story, as the one who has made us, he's the one who knows how we function. He's the one who knows how we work. And so therefore, um, so can we have the next slide? The story starts with Jesus, but we say first that scripture is our guide. Scripture is our guide. Like what God thinks in this is primary because he made us and because he loves us. Like at home, I've got a television. If I want to know how the TV works, I don't go and pull out the instruction manual for my oven nor do I go and ask my friend Bob, because as much as Bob may know about televisions, he doesn't know as much as the manufacturer. I get the manufacturer's instructions out because they're the people who are best positioned to show me how the television works. And so in this story, Scripture is our guide because what God thinks and knows about us like, transcends what we know, and we want to kind of like, sit into what he thinks because he loves us. And, and in this, I think this is really important. Obedience to Jesus in discipleship is for our good. It's not for God's ego. It's not that, that God sort of one day was thinking, gosh, well, I'm God, I've got some people, I've got to make sure that the God thing's upheld, so let's cook up some fairly arbitrary rules um, to kind of get people to prove how much they love me and to prove that they're worshipping me. Like, that's just not how it is. Like when God is kind of instructing us and guiding us in his word, he, he's doing that to guide us into life. He's doing that to guide us into flourishing. He's doing that to guide us into fullness. Why? Because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us as the one who has made us. So he's seeking to guide us into that. So scripture is our guide. And what we believe about scripture is that the whole thing is inspired by God. It's written by humans, but it's inspired by God. Um, but there is a question, and the question is this. It's one of interpretation. What does it mean when it says? And what does that mean for us today? But we do that by wrestling with Scripture, not setting it aside. So the story starts with Jesus as Father and Creator, so Scripture is our guide. But second, relationship is the means. Relationship is the means. God is our Father. You know, Jesus says, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. The way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is only possible. The way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is only plausible in an intimate relationship with Jesus. You know, we're the rescued, not the heroes in this story. We don't get to claim some kind of like superior morality as those who are like more sophisticated and better than everyone else. This isn't, and this series is not, about kind of lecturing the world. This is a conversation that's for Christians. Um, because the only way in which the way of Jesus can be realized is in relationship with him. It's the only way it makes sense. It's the only way it's possible. It's the only way it's plausible. Um, and if, if you're here today and you're kind of like not sure what you think about Jesus, maybe you're on a journey, maybe you, you don't believe at all, I would say that the question for you in this series is not, do you think Jesus' sex ethic is any good? The question is, do you think Jesus is someone who can be trusted with your life? Because if he can... 
and he made you, then maybe what he says for your sexuality is good news, whether or not you understand it, like it or not. So it's a story that starts with God at the center, the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who wants to bless us, who is our father, who is our creator. But secondly, this is a story of what it means to be human. A story of what it means to be human. I think some people think in this um, that we're just being a bit fussy like, by even like, having a sexual ethic as Christians. You know, I think it was Stephen Fry who famously kind of said, you know, like, who cares what two people do in the bedroom? Why is God so interested in that? And he painted this kind of picture as God as this kind of like weird pervert who takes an interest in what happens in the bedroom for no particular reason. And he was kind of saying, why? Like, who cares? What's all the fuss about? We've moved on since then. We're not Victorians anymore. We've got over it. We're not prudes. Grow up, in other words. Um, I want to read a scripture. This is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this. He's quoting the Corinthians back to them. He says, um, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. I think if we move on to Z King, it will come up. And God will destroy them both. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. And, and what, what basically in Corinthian culture there was, is there was this saying they used, and they kind of said, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. In other words, eat what you want, you know, it doesn't matter. The stomach's designed for food, food's designed for the stomach. Eat what you want, it doesn't make any difference to anything, it doesn't have any spiritual effect, do what you want. And that kind of phrase had almost taken on a kind of a broader meaning for them as a kind of people. You could almost rephrase it to say, sex for the body and the body for sex. It's just sex, like who cares? What's all the fuss about? And Paul says this. Um, I think if we move two on, you'll get the um, Bible verse up. Uh, the other way. Keep going. And again. And one more. And one more. Brilliant. Um, it says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think our culture kind of very much echoes the Corinthians here. And, you know, they were sort of saying, hey, food for the stomach, stomach for food, sex for the body, body for sex. It's just sex. What's all the fuss about? And, and kind of what Paul's saying into this is, no, no, it, it, it matters. And the reason it matters is because of what it means to be human and what this story tells. Because the story this... Uh, the, the message this story tells about it, what it means to be human is there's a couple of things. And what it says is the body does matter. Why? Because the body is part of who we are. I think in the world we live in, we often have a view of the body that's a bit like a car we drive. You know, it's this thing that we kind of sit in and we drive around. And obviously, if it gets hit, you know, it does have something of an effect on us, but it's separate from us. You know, the real will kind of is on the inside of this thing, and one day we'll escape this kind of body, but the real will kind of lives within. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the case. The body and who you are as people are one and the same. You see, if you, if you read through this passage, the way in which he uses the, the term body and the way in which he talks about kind of what it means to be a 
person are synonymous. You know, he says, shall I take the members of Christ? And you're not, sorry, um, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then he says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite with a prostitute? Do you not know who he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Like for Paul, what he's saying is, your body is who you are. It's part of who you are. Like, your body is you. It's not distinct from the real you. Why does this matter? To put it another way, we're embodied souls. We're not souls within a body. Um, we're never going to lose our bodies. Like, the Christian story is one of resurrection, and it's one of bodily resurrection. We see Jesus raised from the dead, and he rises from the dead bodily. We're never going to have an unembodied existence. We're always going to be bodied. And so I think the story that this is telling is that we're not like someone driving a car. We're much more like a tortoise. If you look at a tortoise, the tortoise has got a shell. On a glance, you know, the shell looks like it's um, separate from the tortoise. But actually, the, the, the shell is an integral part of the tortoise. If you take the shell away, you haven't got a tortoise. It's dead. It ceases to exist. You know, if you break the shell of a tortoise, you, you don't just break the shell. You break the tortoise itself. That's the view of the body that this story tells us. Why does this matter? It matters for this reason. Because sex, then is a joining of two persons, not simply a joining of two bodies. To put it a different way, what you do with your body is what you do with who you are, which is what you do, therefore, to who you are. That's why it matters. It matters because God cares about us, because he cares about the people that we are. And this isn't simply a kind of neutral activity. It's something that, whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we can measure it or not, affects us on the kind of deepest level of our person. This isn't a kind of like, oh, well, you've had a car crash, never mind, you can get a new car. This is more like kind of breaking the shell of a tortoise. And the thing is, I think we know this. I think our culture knows that sex isn't just sex. There's just a level of inconsistency. It's why the Me Too movement is a thing. It's why there is a difference between a boss saying, can you do some overtime in lieu of a promotion versus someone asking for sexual favors in lieu of a promotion. They're different. What makes them different? The sex element. Like, it's why rape is considered to be a considerably worse crime than assault. It's why sexual abuse is so horrific and so damaging. The sex element is part of that. It's because it's not just sex. It's not just this neutral thing that has no effect and doesn't do anything to us. It's something that we do with who we are, and therefore with do to who we are, for better or for worse. God loves us. He wants us to thrive. Hence, he guides us in his ways of life. The second story it tells us about what it means to be human, though, um, is what Paul says at the end there. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Like our body, and therefore us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. What it means, therefore, is that God, I mean, we could do a whole blooming series on this, but God himself has come to live within us. I mean, pause for a second there. That's mad. God himself has come to live within us. You know, so Paul says we're bought at a price. We're not our own. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're a temple of God. We can choose to be our own, but we can't be both our own and God's. You know, what we do with our body, in other words, has consequences spiritually because our body is a temple. Like when you look at the temple in the Old Testament, um, the, the temple was a, a building, and at the center of the temple, God was present. And um, 
what, what you see kind of with the people of Israel is you see them kind of treating the temple with respect and kind of honoring it in line with how God had made it to be and, 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 see, and, and the people thrive. And then you see the people kind of disregarding the temple and worshiping other gods in it and kind of doing what they want with it. And it, everything just kind of started to kind of slowly fall apart. Because what you do to the temple has a spiritual effect. If our body is a temple, then what we do with our body is inherently spiritual. And Jesus, you know, he's the God who's Father, he's the God who's Creator. He knows this, and he loves us. Like, Jesus wants to have uncompromised intimacy with him. And our body plays a part. And so he cares about this because he cares about us. He cares about who we are. He cares about what we're doing to ourselves. And he cares about our relationship with him, the intimacy that we enjoy with him. He's not being fussy. He's loving us. He's loving us. Third. So um, first, it's a story about Jesus. Second, it's a story about what it means to be. Third, it's a redemptive story. It's a redemptive story. First off, let's go here. Sex and sexuality is good, right? It's a good gift from God. I think sometimes we focus so much on the blimmin' rules in the church and what, no, yes, no, yes, that we've missed that this is a good gift from God. This isn't something of like shame or dirt or, or awfulness. It's a good thing. Let me read a scripture. Um, Zeking, this should be on the slides. Genesis 1, um, it says, So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created them. It says, God what? Blessed them. Not cursed, but blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, be fruitful and increase in number means many things. But one thing that it definitively means is this. Have sex. I don't know if you've stopped to think about this. This is the first command in Scripture. The first command in Scripture isn't a you shall not. It's a you shalt. And it's a you shalt have sex. We've spoken so much about what we shouldn't do that we've missed that this is this incredible gift from God that he wants to bless us with that he actually commands us to do. I don't know if you've ever read the book of um, Song of Songs. We're going to read a bit. The book of Song of Songs is misunderstood. Sometimes we talk about it as kind of an allegory of Christ and the church. And it is that. But first and foremost, the Song of Songs is this. It's a book of erotic love poems. If you haven't read it, do. It's an interesting read. Um, but it is a book of erotic love poems that's in the Bible. It's a celebration of sex and sexuality. And, it's, and it, like, it's pretty graphic. And to be honest, it gets more graphic if you kind of debug some of the imagery. Let me read a couple of bits. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. This is the Bible, remember. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. What are they going to do in his chambers? Maybe they're going to go for a game of Scrabble and read poetry. No, of course they're not. They're going in there to have sex. The next chapter says this, I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, if you're thinking, gosh, are they sampling a nice fruit salad? The answer is no, my friends. And does it mean what you think it means? Yes, it does. And yes, it is that thing you're thinking right now. This is this incredible celebration of sex and sexuality. It's this good thing. It's not this thing of shame and dirt and to be kicked into the corner. It's this amazing thing that God has given us. But of course, in this story that, that, that we see in the scriptures, we, we see this. We see that we are broken. That, that every single one of us kind of experiences the whole of life, but certainly our sexuality. And I mean all of us. It's not... Um, in a broken way, you know, we experience disappointment and regret and 
loneliness and misunderstanding and, you know, sometimes tragically abuse. You know, every single one of us experiences our sexuality in a broken way. You know, not everything that we desire or everything we experience of our sexuality necessarily leads us to life. There are things that sometimes come into my mind that I desire, which if I were to follow through on, um, would destroy me and destroy my marriage. Not everything that we desire is, is, uh, sexually is necessarily kind of leads us into life. You know, we need Jesus to guide us into wholeness. And so what this is about is it's about an invitation. It's about an invitation from a God who loves us to a journey of redemption with Jesus. But I think the way we've told this story is often amplified shame. Um, it's made sexual stuff to be the kind of sin par excellence. It's not left any room for people to be in process or to make mistakes or to be real. It's turned something that's meant to be a journey into a binary of kind of in-out, pass-fail, saint-sinner. This isn't the story of the sorted and the kind of messy. It's the story of the messy and the messy. Um, the problem is that just some of us are quite good at hiding it. And some of us are simply deluded. We all experience our sexuality in a broken way, and we're all on a journey of redemption with Jesus. And so what this is, is it's a lifelong journey. It's not a place of arrival. It's a place of journeying with Jesus. And on that journey, sometimes there's struggle. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard. But we do that with him, knowing that he'll carry us on the way. Sometimes there's a wrestle because we're like, gosh, God, is that really what you're calling me to? Is that really how you're asking me to live? That seems a bit weird. I don't understand that. And there's a necessary kind of wrestle with Jesus on that journey that we don't need to conclude tomorrow. That might take months. It might take years. But it's a valid part of the journey. You know, on that journey, often we stumble. We take a step forward and we fall down. We take one step forward and we take three back. But we do that knowing that all the way Jesus is with us, he picks us up, he loves us, and he leads us on. It's a story of redemption, and I, I, I wonder if there's some people here today, and, and, and you've labored for years maybe under a spirit of shame because some idiot, let's call them that, has basically just poured scorn upon you in the way you live your life and made you feel like rubbish and made you feel like God hates you. And what I want to say today, if you hear nothing else, is that's not true. That he loves you. That, that this is a journey. That of course you're not sorted. Of course you're going to make mistakes. Of course you're going to stumble. That's the essence of journey. That's the essence of redemption. He loves you. We do this with him though. He has never let you go. He never will let you go. And just because you're confused or not sure what you think or you're kind of getting it wrong or right or doesn't mean that he's given up on you. He is still walking with you. Fourth and finally, um, this is a story of purpose and meaning. I don't know if you've stopped to think about this. There is no reason whatsoever that we couldn't have been created to reproduce asexually. In other words, kind of you know, by ourselves. There are animals in the animal kingdom that have the ability to reproduce asexually, things like the zebra shark, the Komodo dragon, the turkey, who knew? Um, I certainly didn't. Um, there is no inherent reason why we have to be sexed. There is no inherent reason why we have to have sexual desires. There is no inherent reason why sex needs to be pleasurable. Like, so why are we? Was it an accident? Did God go, oh gosh, how did that happen? Oh well, you know, and how are we going to deal with this then? Like, no. He created us intentionally a certain way on purpose. Why? 
Let me read this. This is Ezekiel 16, verse 8. It's a bit of an odd scripture. I'm just going to have a drink. This is God talking um, about Israel, his people. He says, later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. Again, there's euphemisms all over the place here. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. We see this in Ezekiel, we see it elsewhere in Scripture. God uses the language of sex and sexuality to speak of his love and his relationship and his posture towards us. Like when you look at Paul in Ephesians, there's this passage, we're going to go, uh, I'm going to frame this up today, we're going to do a deep dive into this next week, but um, uh, you look at Paul in Ephesians and he's talking about marriage. And then at the end he goes, oh yeah, I'm not really talking about marriage, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And, and what we see as we kind of look at this for long enough is we see that it's not that God was hunting around the earth for a metaphor to say something about us and to say something about him and to say something about his love for us. He made us this way to be a metaphor. Like, this is a story of purpose and meaning. Let me read this quote. See, King, we have the next slide. Um, this is um, Ed Shaw in his book, Purposeful Sexuality, quoting a guy called Christopher West, who's um, a theologian, and then he's riffing on it a bit. He says this. God made us as sexual beings, as men and women, with a desire for union, precisely to tell a story of his love for us. In the biblical view, the fulfillment of love between the sexes is the great foreshadowing of something literally out of this world, the infinite bliss and ecstasy that awaits us in heaven. We have sexuality, sexual experiences and feelings, so that we can grasp God's love for us and point us to where this world is heading. Like, we are created as sexual beings with sexual desires because it tells a story. It tells a story of God's passion for us in a way that outside of that is impossible to communicate in any way that we can really fully glimpse. It tells a story of our true longing for him, our true need for him. It tells a story of kind of the ecstasy that it will be to be in union with Jesus for eternity in the new creation. This is the ultimate reason we have a sexuality. And so like, when you have sexual desire for others, is it for others? Yes, but ultimately, it's more than that. It's revealing something. It's revealing something of your desire and your need and your longing for God. Sexual union is pleasurable for us to enjoy as a gift, yes, but it's also pleasurable because it's telling a story. It's giving us a glimpse into the future of the ecstasy that it will be to be united with Jesus in eternity forever. Forever. Sexuality is designed to point us to our need for God. It's designed to remind us of our union with him, of his commitment to us. Um, and it's designed to show us of our incompleteness without him. It shows us the passion of God's love for us. Sexual desire is ultimately a cry for God. To put it another way, it's a sign. Now here's the thing. I think for too many of us, we have stopped at the sign thinking that the sign is the main event. And, and, and it's a sign that's worth stopping at. It's a good sign because it is a gift from God, but it is more than just that. It's pointing beyond itself. You know, if it's a sign that's going to the zoo, it might be a great sign. It might have some amazing facilities and things for us to enjoy and bless us at the sign. You'd be stupid to stop at the sign. The sign isn't it. This life isn't it. You know, we're not going to have sex in the next. Like, it's pointing us to something in the future. It's pointing us to God. It's pointing us to his love for us. It's a vehicle that God uses to show us his love and draw us into him. So, 
Sex is not dirty. It is not a source of shame. It is a gift that the God who is your father and your maker is redeeming in you. Why? To bless you. Why? Because he loves you more than you can comprehend. It's a gift that he's giving us to draw us further into his love. He cares about how we live our sexuality because he cares about you. And because he cares about you, he cares about what you do with your body because your body is part of who you are. He cares about it because you are his temple. And what you do with his temple has an effect on the intimacy that you get to enjoy with him. He doesn't want that compromise. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to know you more. Because he wants to bless you in innumerable ways. It's a story of God's love for you. I'm going to finish there. Um, like next week, we're going to talk a bit about kind of how we kind of walk into this, the vehicles that kind of God gives us to, to live into this story. Um, but I just want to end with, with maybe just spending a bit of time in prayer, if that's all right. I'm conscious that um, for many of us, um, the story I've told is maybe not the story we've been told. Um, maybe we've been told half a story. Maybe we've been told some of the story. Maybe, like, tragically, um, we've been told the story in a way that just makes us feel like a heap of rubbish. Um, and, and if that's you, I just want to pray into that and pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not in the process of making mistakes. You've made us sexually intentionally, and you've done it to bless us. And more than that, God, you love us in ways that we can't comprehend, in ways that we don't fully understand. You love us. And I just pray now, Lord, that you would just reveal that to every one of us. And I particularly want to pray for anyone who um, is experiencing hurt, disappointment with regard to their sexuality right now, or with regard to kind of how others have treated them for their embodiment of it. And I just pray that you would just draw alongside all of us now, Lord, and just show us your love, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and meet with us in this place. Maybe for some of you, you've not so much got a, um, a prayer as a question. Maybe that question is, can I trust you, God? Maybe just lift that to him now, just voice it to him. A prayer, a prayer of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you. 
May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and your sexuality. May he bring you his love. May he bring you his peace. May he bring you fulfillment in him. Amen.